2: This is the tom hartman program and greetings my friends patriots lovers of democracy truth and justice believers in peace freedom and the american way tom hartman here with you i want to get into the press and the way that the press has been treating the pullout from afghanistan my buddy dean Obadalla, who is on sirius xm on the progress channel here where i am three hours after I get off the air, I believe his his show starts at 6 p.m. Eastern time. We also have a geeky science. Does overpopulation create more violence or is there something that can actually kind of act as a flywheel on that? This morning uh, when Louise and I got up at 5.30, I turned on the TV and twice while I was listening to TV, I heard people say, commentators on on TV say, do we have to worry that Afghanistan is going to become another hotbed of terrorism that will be used to attack America? And I'm like, that's the wrong question. Afghanistan had little or nothing to do with 9-11. 9-11 was, was yeah, it was, the, the Bin Laden apparently wrote the check. Where'd he get the money? He got the money from Ronald Reagan and Saudi Arabia. Not a penny of this came from anybody in Afghanistan. No Afghan national, no Afghan government. They had nothing to do with the planning of 9-11. They had nothing to do with the payment for 9-11. They didn't know 9-11 happened. 9-11 was executed by 15 Saudis. uh, A guy from Egypt, a guy from Lebanon, and there were two other people. What I think they were Yemenis, I'm not sure. They were citizens of the United Arab Emirates. That's right, two from the UAE. Not a single Afghan was involved in 9-11. Oh, but wasn't bin Laden running a terrorist training camp in, in, in Afghanistan? Yes, just like the, the Michigan militia runs them you know, in, in northern Michigan, where a bunch of yahoos get together, pay, pay their $50 fee, and go out in the woods and shoot up trees. Uh, that had nothing to do with 9-11. But wasn't the planning for 9-11 done in, in Afghanistan? No, it was done in Hamburg, Germany. And then the, the uh, uh, what would you call him? I, a Courier, I guess, is the word, from Germany traveled down to Afghanistan just before 9-11 to tell bin Laden, hey, this, it's going to happen. Bin Laden at that point knew none of the operational details. That was all handled by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed out of Pakistan and Hamburg, Germany. And then they sent these, these Saudi hijackers to the United States. Legally, by the way, they all came in on tourist visas. Actually, I think a couple of them came in on educational visas. We want to learn how to be pilots. And Mohammed Atta was down in Venice, Florida, along with a couple of the other guys learning how to be a pilot. So it was planned in Germany. It was The final planning was done in, in Florida. Bin Laden at the time was in Pakistan getting blood transfusions because his kidneys were failing. And we decided to attack Afghanistan? Really? Because we said, oh, 9-11 came from Afghanistan. But doesn't the Taliban hate America? The Taliban doesn't give a rat's ass about America if we would just stay the hell out of their country. Afghanistan fought off the Turks. They fought off the, the, the Mongol hordes. They fought off the Catholics. They fought off the Persians. They fought off the, 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 the British. They fought off the Soviets. Well, I thought the Taliban wanted to create a worldwide No, no, you're thinking of ISIS. ISIS wants to have they wants to reestablish the Caliphate across southern Europe, the Middle East, and Northern Africa. That's ISIS. That's who, by the way, blew up the bill, you know, blew up the bombs and it killed the people in Afghanistan. It wasn't the Taliban. The Taliban was trying to provide security. They they want to run a country. Now, I'm not a big fan of the Taliban. They're throwbacks to the 12th century, but they're not the ones who attacked us on 9-11. George Bush and Dick Cheney would like you to think that, because, hey, you know, if we're going to have a war to try to get reelected in 2004, why not have a war against a country where the average income is two dollars a day, where there's no air force to speak of and where their army is a joke? Let's take on that country. Sort of like just, you know, a little earlier when when uh, the, the humiliating uh, explosion happened in Lebanon that killed over 100 uh, U.S. Marines, as I recall, during the Reagan administration. What was Reagan's response? Let's invade Grenada. Remember? Bin Laden was very clear about why he attacked the United States. It had nothing to do with Afghanistan. He attacked the United States. He told us in 1996 that he was going to do this. Because back in the early 90s when George Herbert Walker Bush was president of the United States and he thought having a little war, just like Ronald Reagan had his little war in Grenada and it helped him get reelected in in, uh, 1984, maybe if we have a little war in, say, Iraq, just a three-day war, just a little war. It'll help us get a reelected in 1992. And so Bush did it. But in order to get the, 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 gun, the, the weapons and the, the airplanes into Iraq, they needed a staging base for that war. So he talked uh, uh, Saudi Arabia into, for the first time, letting Americans take over the bin Sultan Air Force Base um, and uh, a Saudi Air Force Base. And we never left. Or at least we didn't. We'd, I'll tell you when we left in just a second. But so we took over this Air Force base in Saudi Arabia. And Osama bin Laden, and by the way, a significant ch- chunk of the Saudi population, bin Laden was not alone in this. Bin Laden was, was expressing an opinion that was held by fundamentalists across the region, particularly in Saudi Arabia, was saying, wait a minute. The war is over, it lasted three days. Get your people the hell out of here. You've got men who are watching porn and drinking alcohol on sacred Saudi soil. And you've got women who are showing their elbows and driving cars and probably having sex with the men without being married, they're certainly not covering their faces, on sacred Saudi soil. Get the hell out of our country. In 1996, Bin Laden said, this is September 2nd, 1996, we are going to launch a guerrilla war against American forces and expel the infidels from the Arabian Peninsula, end quote. Two years later, in 1998, Bin Laden met privately with a reporter for The Guardian, quote, we believe we are the men, Muslim men, committed to defending The grandest house in the universe, the holy Saudi Ka'aba land, is an honor to die and defend. So this is our aim, to liberate the lands of Islam, of Saudi Arabia, from the sinners, end quote. The next year, in a letter to America that was published in the New York Times, Osama bin Laden wrote, quote, Your forces occupy our country. You spread your military bases throughout it. You corrupted our lands. You besieged our sanctities. You protect the security of the Jews and to ensure the continuity of your pillage of our treasures. End quote. 9 11 was all about bin Laden saying, Get the hell out of Saudi Arabia. And by the way, right after 9 11, guess what President George W. Bush did? He pulled all the American forces out of Saudi Arabia. Bin Laden got exactly what he asked for. And it's not like this was a surprise. Richard Clark, uh, the security advisor for, for President Clinton, came on this program back in 2002. Or maybe it was 2003, whatever it was. It must have been 2003, because that's when we started our show in March of 2003. Came on this program and said, I personally told Condoleezza Rice that bin Laden was going to strike the United States if we didn't get out of it, uh, you know, out of that Air Force Base in Saudi Arabia. And I know that Al Gore told that to Dick Cheney, and I know that, that Bill Clinton told that to George W. Bush, and they basically laughed at us. So why does the media keep saying, oh, gee, if we leave Afghanistan, there's going to be terrorism attacking the United States when it was never that in the first place? Well, because it's a convenient story that gives Bush and Cheney cover. They wanted a war for re-election purposes, and they got their war. It's that simple. And the war, by the way, was over in fewer than three weeks. That's how long it took to take down the Taliban government. And then we started a 20-year occupation, and don't get me started all about that. But this all goes back to Pappy Bush's war that he lied us into, by the way. There were no babies being thrown out of incubators. That was a stunt put together by an American PR firm with a with a, 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 a princess from a former Kuwaiti princess testified lying to the United States Congress. Saying, they're they're throwing babies out of incubators. Those nasty Iraqi soldiers. George Herbert Walker Bush wanted to lie us into a little war so he could get himself re-elected. In doing so, he put soldiers in Saudi Arabia, pissed off Osama bin Laden, and he struck us on 9-11. Let's tell the friggin' truth about what happened. I mean, if the media is going to ask questions, they need to ask the right questions. Here are my three nominees. You can add whatever you want. Number one. How did Bush and Cheney get away with lying us into a war and a 20-year occupation of Afghanistan and nearly that long in Iraq without political or historic consequences? Number two, why did the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations, three administrations, two Republican, one Democratic, why did they all, knowing that these occupations were a lost cause and a waste of American blood and treasure, why didn't they get us out before now? And number three, what can we do in the Middle East... And elsewhere around the world, if that is our goal, to promote peace, modernity, and democratic values without using warplanes, drones, soldiers, and bombs. When we start asking those questions, when we start having that conversation, then America will have grown up. But right now, we're still stuck in this infantile stage where we are giving an absolute pass to George W. Bush and Dick Cheney for lying to us, for their war crimes, for their torture, for everything else. And somehow the Republicans are turning the outcome of these lies into a political problem for Joe Biden, for God's sake, who's just trying to clean up the mess that was left in by three previous presidents that was started by George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. Let's tell the truth about this. Damn it, let's do it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. If you want all the details and the hot links and everything, it's all over at hartmanreport.com. Indianapolis. Hey Jeremy, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today?
0: Yeah, I believe that scientists could certainly learn a lot more about human mentality by studying how we behave in video games. And there's some behaviors anecdotally that I was wondering, you know, I'd like your thoughts on them kind of as well as anybody else who's out there's thoughts on them. Um, One thing I've, I've noticed is that You know, video games back in the day used to be uh, slower, more intellectual, partly because computers weren't as fast as they are now, but also because nerds were the ones, you know, making them for nerds. I know, I wrote a video game
2: (laughs) for for the kids in our community for abused kids back in 1980. 1980. It ran on a TRS-80 Model 3. It was written in basic. Four pages of basic code. That's how I, I learned, learned BASIC. basic. <laughs> but yeah. Anyhow, yeah, wow. it was very simple. It was like a treasure hunt, you
0: know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was I full used of to, uh, if, I, if yeah.
2: then's, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, I actually started with QBASIC, but uh, I did I did stuff in BASIC as well. Yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah, well, one of the things I've noticed is, like, the, the most popular uh, PC games out there tend to be ones that are reflex-based, but also, uh, not just that, but they tend to be ones where people can jump into a team uh Semi-anonymously, and and you play these these like MOBA games. to call, I don't know if you have heard of them, or, or you know. some of the first, I'm, I'm really
2: one, out of touch with this. Yeah,
0: so it's fine. But basically, you join a team of random people, and then what happens is if you win, well, you're the most awesome player there there was. You know, you you totally carried the team. You're the best guy ever. But if you lose, well, it's not my fault. My team was terrible. Uh, you know, that uh, I didn't do anything wrong. And 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 then and I think that. That, that exposes something with human mentality, you know. If, if, if you know, in general, like with things with like global warming and and COVID right now and, and everything else in the world, that you know that it, it's like you know, i you know I jump in, we win, I'm awesome, but you know we lose. Well, it's not my fault. It's also and, not a reflection
2: like, of reality, Jeremy. I mean, if you know anybody who's ever participated in a team sport, uh, you know, or, or in the military. Um, gets mm-hmm. it that you know the the team your life depends on the team and the team's right. life depends on you and you guys are right. as interconnected and interrelated you know assuming that you're facing some sort of really serious mission as our family
0: yeah but you're not anonymous when exactly. you're a like, like, soccer field oh, it's the exact or opposite an, you know, of being anonymous. American football field it's like you're right. you're integrated
2: right. into you're knit into that group that's the whole point right. of the team.
0: But when we're a country or the world and we're facing things like global warming or a pandemic, you know, are you really part of the team or are you just so your argument is that
2: modern video games are increasing individual isolation and increasing the mentality that society, uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher's old thing. There's no such thing as society there's only a collection of individuals that we don't have responsibility for each other.
0: Well, it's certainly exposing it, if not uh, increasing it. it. And I and I and I do wonder what if it is it's a increasing it or not. Business. Yeah, and, and there's one more if I got a moment, which is you. You were speaking before about savior mentality, you know, savior is going to come and save us mentality. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that uh, the, the, the consequences of the video games have also gone down, and people are you know—they're playing video games. They don't face real consequences, and then when you're in reality, reality of course has real consequences. But are right. we really prepared for that as, as well as we used to be, right. as a people? Interesting. Oh, so, yep. Thank yeah. you,
2: Jeremy. Thought-provoking stuff. Thank you. I, you know, remarkable. The things—the things people are thinking about that are really consequential. We'll be right back. Along with us, our old buddy, Dean Obadala, host of the Dean Obadala Show, weekdays, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on Sirius XM Progress, Radio mm-hmm. 127. He's a columnist for the Daily Beast. Uh, deanofradio.com is his website. You can tweet him at Dean Obadala. Kind of intuitive. <laughs> and, of course, on SXM Progress. Dean, welcome back to the program. Your op-ed on MSNBC Inspired my rant, and I by, by the way, I gave you credit. I don't know if you've read it yet.
4: I uh, saw it, yes. No, I read your newsletter, I subscribe. It's a great newsletter. I saw that. Thank you very okay. much.
2: You're welcome. No, out. no, thank you very much because I, you know, I've been rolling this idea around in my head for a long time that, that that there are just huge parallels between the authoritarian Taliban movement and the authoritarian Republican movement and all the things that go along with authoritarianism. I think. You know you could draw parallels back to some of the 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 right-wing parties in europe in the 1930s as well but you just laid it out brilliantly uh, give our share with our listeners your riff here
4: sure i mean essentially there's two levels to it the first was hey there's these republicans like kevin mccarthy and others saying we have to stand up for the women of afghanistan which i applaud that but my thesis was well why not stand up for women's rights in america First, because they'll give you more credibility. So I'm not at all saying don't stand up for the women in Afghanistan. Yes, they're facing a really dark future under Taliban rule. If the last time the Taliban ruled from the mid-1990s, 2001, is a preview, what we might see now. So that was first. The second, the other part was, and I'm very blunt because I didn't want to play games. I don't say the GOP and the Taliban are the same. But I do say this, and this is the truth, that a similar playbook from the extremists within the GOP, that they want to turn their religious beliefs into the law of the land, and specifically in terms of oppressing women. And they have Arkansas, I give an example, specifically Arkansas, they passed a law in March banning abortion except for the life of the woman who's pregnant, meaning if you are raped in Arkansas, you can't get an abortion. And if anyone helps you try to get an abortion, it's a felony. That's literally the law. That's not a proposal. That's the law. It's held up by the federal courts right now. But I started my article with that, sort of the idea, if you write about a place where women can't get abortion, even if they're raped, it's a crime to help them get an abortion, would that be a Taliban law? I said, no, it's an Arkansas GOP law. And that's really what they want the law of the land to be. And I I cite Asa Hutchinson, the governor of Arkansas, when signing it, specifically citing his pro-life beliefs, which I respect people's religious beliefs. I just don't want them the law of the land. I'm a person of faith, too. I'm not going to make my Muslim beliefs the law of America. That's outrageous. I'll fight anyone, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, any faith, who wants to turn their law into their their rules into our law. That's Islamic Sharia. These guys want to do Christian Sharia, and it's time we call it out even more. And it, Tom, it really pissed them off in ways. They were op eds written against me in Fox News, town hall, The Washington Examiner today. Their editorial board, not the op ed, their editorial board attack me for writing this, the catholic league and others but what i find curious tom not one of them in any article says they don't want to turn their religious beliefs into the law of the land they're upset with me hinting the taliban and the gops are saying they want to turn their religion their perverted view of the bible into our law they're not denying that that's where they are that's what they're about
2: this is this is not a new debate in the United States Dean back back at the founding of the republic there's a whole series of of uh, letters back and forth between uh, when Thomas Jefferson was in in uh, Paris as the US envoy to Paris and his uh, his protégé James Madison the the, the who uh, almost a decade later would be known as the father of the constitution um, was uh, you know they were corresponding about what ultimately became the first amendment and the um, the no religious test clause in the constitution and jefferson's fear was that priests could become politicians and that religious and and he was in favor of religious figures being barred as long as they held a religious office being barred from public office and madison who was and and of course jefferson was basically an atheist he was a, a deist um, Madison on the other hand was uh, either a presbyterian or a congregationalist. He was, you know, kind of one of these kind of plain vanilla uh, Christian uh guys, but he was very into his Christian faith. And and Madison was not concerned about that. He figured that we would be able to control priests in, in political office. He was concerned about the corruption of the church by government. In other words, Jefferson was afraid that government would be oh, corrupted by the church. Madison was afraid that the church would be corrupted by government. So much so that when he became president in uh, in 1811 or 18, no, 1809, the first veto that James Madison issued The George Washington administration had started a poorhouse in Washington D.C. for the poor. It was paid for with federal funds, and it 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 housed them, it clothed them, it fed them, and it gave them medical care. And and during the Madison administration, so we you know welfare in the United States socialism goes back to George Washington, but in the Madison administration, here we now he's the fourth president, um, the Congress had passed a law that took control that poorhouse out of the hands of the federal government and put it in the hands of the local of a local church, and with the federal government paying the church to do it. In other words, you know, kind of subcontracting mm-hmm. it. That was Madison's first veto. And he vetoed it saying that it would establish a precedent of the federal government giving money to religious organizations which could destroy religion, which would corrupt religion. And I think you could argue we have both. You know, we've, you've got all these religious organizations that are taking piles of money from, from you know political sources and, and, and whatnot. And at the same time, you've got all these religious folks inside government. Um, which do you think, you know, so I think both of their nightmares came true. Um, and both of them were trying to reassure the other, oh, your idea is never going to happen. <laughs> they were both right, they were both wrong but what where how is it worse dean uh, you know I, I know that you're you're far more finally you know uh, acutely aware of this than i am um given the fact that you're muslim and you know after nine eleven, this just you know you, you and so many other people uh you know of your faith had a bullseye on your back essentially a, at least a political one um mm-hmm. you know your thoughts on that debate and how it's playing out today
4: well yeah i always think of thomas jefferson's famous letter to the ministers talking about the absolute wall between church and state that he envisioned. And to me, that really was giving you a sense of what he believed the First Amendment was going to be and what it should be. You know, you have the GOP increasingly looking like the autocratic party. We know that the religious-infused autocratic party. And, you know, I was doing research earlier. It's not in this article. I'll probably write an article later. But you have more rights as a woman— in many, many Muslim countries over the control of your own body than you would in Arkansas, this law remain in in effect. And when you see Asia Hutchinson, when you see the GOP state senator in Arkansas, when they signed this, he talked about our goal is to abolish abortion throughout the nation. They even want to get rid of it, Tom. In the case of the woman carrying the fetus, if her life is at risk, they don't want to let her get an abortion. And their idea is that it's God's will. All right. Look, I'm all down with God's will, but you don't make that law of the land. You know, that's ridiculous. In Muslim country after Muslim country, the life of the mother, they can always get an abortion. And in countries like Tunisia, you can get it for almost any reason you want. It's not really a very conservative country, but still, you have the spectrum within that world where people think, oh, wow, Muslims horribly oppressive. Yes, in certain countries, they are. In others, they've evolved. And You know, you can't get away from the fact that GOP and the Taliban are similar in this. They truly want to make their religious text and their interpretation of that, because I can assure you, as a Muslim, there's almost no one in the Muslim world that now adheres to the Taliban's view, but they want to make it the law of the land. And look at, Tom, for example, people, I I hate when the media goes, Taliban wants to impose Sharia. They don't even know what Sharia means when they say it. It's not a book of law. Look at Pakistan, neighbors Afghanistan. Pakistan elected a woman as prime minister, Benazir Bhutto, twice. We haven't elected a woman. 60% of the doctors in Pakistan are women. CEOs of companies are women. So who defined Islam correctly? Is it Pakistan or the Afghan Taliban, which is way out there as an outlier? I think though in America, the GOP represents their view of Christianity. It's an extremist view. I don't think it's mainstream, but I still think it's oppressive. And I, I had so many emails from these. People going, well, this is, the, they cite the Bible to me, going, well, that should be the law. I go, in the Bible, it says in the Old Testament, if a woman's not a virgin on her wedding night, she should be stoned to death. Is that next? It says in the New Testament, a woman should learn in silence. Who would be next making that law? And they disappear when you ask that. Because I've had this debate over years when they said, Muslims want to impose the Quran in America. We, we don't. There's no evidence of this. But look at the Bible. You want to find some scary things and some great things? Yeah. If you're a right wing Christian, why not start with imposing in Matthew, which says, "I was hungry and you gave me something to eat; I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink; I was a stranger, you welcomed me in." Let's start there with that Christianity, and then we can talk about other things and, and debate that later. Right.
2: How do you, how do you, uh, Dean? We just have a minute and a half, by the way, till we're going to hit a hard break here. How do we start taking deconstructing this uh, binding of uh, fundamental radical? Christianity to the Republican Party
4: I don't think it's possible I think that's they've made that we may even talk about it on the show at one point the pro-life movement wasn't a part and parcel of the GOP and turning that religious belief into the law of the land but the GOP continues on that path and like with most things the GOP becomes more extreme at one point Tom we all know this they were okay with three exceptions for abortion rape, incest, the life of the mother now they're down to one the life of the woman who's pregnant, and now they're moving to even ban that because of God's will. I'm not kidding. So the GOP is becoming more and more extreme. It won't end with abortion. It can't. And it's going to be a dark day for the women of America where they have less rights simply because of their gender. Like in Afghanistan, it's a crime to be born a woman. I hate to think in America that's where we're heading. If Roe versus Wade happens, you're a woman in a red state, it will be a crime to be a woman because you literally have less rights in your red state than you will in a blue state. That, that's why abortion can't be states' rights.
2: Yeah, not, and, and not so much literally a crime as you're simply less than fully human.
4: That's what I mean by that. Yeah, well, under I mean, the, under that, the you're, you're, you're already suffering. And as I note in my article, these Republicans so about women's rights. Tom, uh, you know, we had Ken McCarthy and others voted against the Violence Against Women Act, voted against equal pay two months ago. All of them. Start there, Republicans. Show us you care about women, gender equality, and protecting women and their control of their body by fighting for America's women. How about
2: that first yeah there you go and in my opinion that's just the tip of the iceberg too <laughs> so dean obadala the, the, the great dean obadala dean of radio.com you can listen to thank him man. on hang on just a second here i'm gonna get stepped on hang on
3: this is
2: the tom hartman program you can listen to him on sirius xm every day six to nine p.m eastern time channel 127 sirius xm progress thank you dean thanks tom good talking with you we'll be right back Hi, it's Tom Harbin, Book Club, and today we're reading from What Would Jefferson Do? And this is from the chapter Warlords, Theocrats, and Autocrats, Aristocrats Rise Again, the subchapter Theocrats Attack Democracy. And the uh, epigraph that we started the chapter with is from uh, President Abraham Lincoln, where he said, I am approached with the most opposite opinions and advice, and by men who are equally certain that they represent the divine will. I hope it will not be irreverent of me to say that if it is probable that God would reveal His will on such a point so connected with my duty, it might be supposed He would reveal it directly to me. <laughs> so the subhead of the chapter "America is a Christian Nation." No, it's a nation where a lot of Christians live. And I write about Judge Moore and his Ten Commandments thing and his statement that you know America was founded in Christianity, and, and then proceed to share the founder's actual view on this. Our founders were both well-schooled in the history of the Crusades and knew from firsthand experience with Puritanism how oppressive religious men could be, even with small amounts of political power. Ben Franklin fled Boston when he was a teenager, in part to escape the oppressive environment created by politically powerful preachers. And for the rest of his life, he was openly hostile to the idea of a secular power being wielded by those who hold also religious power. Although he was fascinated by the spiritual experience, Franklin had little use for the organized religions of his day. In his autobiographical Toward the Mystery, he wrote, quote, I have found Christian dogma unintelligible. Early in life, I absented myself from Christian assemblies. End quote. In his autobiography, Franklin talks about how he came to this way of thinking. Quote, my parents had early given me religious impressions and brought me through my childhood piously dissenting in the Puritan way. But I was scarce 15 when, after doubting by turns of several points as I found them disputed in the different books I read, I began to doubt of revelation itself. Some books against deism fell into my hands. They were said to be the substance of sermons preached at Boyle's lectures. It happened that they wrought an effect on me quite contrary to what was intended by them, for the arguments of the deists, which were quoted to be refuted, appeared to me much stronger than the refutations, and I soon became a thorough deist. End of quote. Franklin, like most of the more well known founders, was a deist, subscribing to a philosophy made popular by Unitarians who held that the Creator made the universe long ago and has since chosen not to interfere in any way. Excuse me, that neither Jesus nor anybody else was divine, or alternatively, that we are all divine, and that there is only one God and not three. Another founding deist who resisted giving political power to those with religious power was George Washington. Jefferson's diary entry for February 1st, 1799 reads quote, When the clergy addressed General Washington on his departure from the government, it was observed in their consultation that he had never, on any occasion, said a word to the public which showed a belief in the Christian religion. And they thought that they should so pen their address as to force him at length to declare fidelity whether he was a Christian or not. They did so. However, Jefferson noted, the old fox was too cunning for them. He answered every article of their address, particularly except that which he passed over without even notice. Jefferson concluded that Washington, quote, never did say a word on the subject in any of his public papers, and that Governor Morris, a close friend of Washington's, has often told me that General Washington believed no more in that Christian system than he himself did, than Governor Morris did, end of quote, from Jefferson in fact president george washington supervised the language of a treaty with african muslims that explicitly stated that the united states was a secular nation the treaty with tripoli worked out under washington's guidance and then signed into law the next year by john adams in seventeen ninety seven reads quote as the government of the united states is not in any sense founded on the christian religion as it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws religion or tranquility of muslims And as the said states never have entered into any war or act of hostility against any Muslim nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries, end of quote. But for the founders, this wasn't just an issue of being Christian or not. They didn't want any organized religion mixing its functions with government. For example, on February 21st, 1811, President James Madison vetoed a bill passed by Congress that authorized government payments to a church in Washington, D.C., to help the poor. Faith based initiatives were a clear violation, in Madison's mind, of the First Amendment doctrine of separation of church and state and could lead to a dangerous transfer of political power to religious leaders. Caring for the poor was a public and civic duty, a function of government, and should not be allowed to become a hole through which churches could reach and seize political power or the taxpayer's purse. Funding a church to provide for the poor would establish, in Madison's words, a legal agency, a legal precedent that would break down the walls of separation the founders had put between church and states to protect Americans from religious zealots gaining political power. Thus, Madison said in his veto message to Congress, he was striking down the proposed law because it helped a church to, quote, provide for the support of the poor and the education of poor children of the same, which, Madison warned, would be a precedent for giving to religious societies that would be giving federal funds now uh, things have certainly changed since then with the faith-based initiative program that started under Reagan has now exploded but anyhow the book is what would jefferson do you're listening to tom hartman and welcome back uh michael in seattle hey michael what's on your mind today
3: hey tom uh, thanks for the show uh, I'm a big fan, and, and I also really like your books. Thank you. Um, I wanted uh, I wanted to ask you and and really, you know, Democrats in general to take a, a much more aggressive stance in defending Joe Biden. And I think it's really fabulous and and brilliant decision to exit Afghanistan. Um, there's just no point in staying there anymore. And yeah. I just barely hear any half-hearted defense at all. I haven't heard words like applaud you know, this great decision. So um, what are your thoughts on that?
2: I, you know, one of the things I wanted to do today, and I, 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 I touched on it briefly in the first hour, and I will embrace it more, more fulsomely, more, more wholeheartedly after this break, um, uh, Michael was to congratulate Joe Biden on the fact that he's gotten 30,000 people out of Afghanistan against, uh, you know, a complete sabotage, a two-and-a-half-year-long sabotage effort by the Trump administration. Um, he's pulling it off, and not a single person has been killed in the process. Um, I, I, I realize there were a couple of deaths outside the airport, uh, basically people being trampled by the crowd, but, I you know, that that that's not Joe Biden's fault. It has nothing to do with it. Um, what happened was that, uh, you know, for the first week or so that... This seems to be being botched up, and what we now have learned is what we were watching was the result of Donald Trump and Steve Miller stopping the special immigrant visa program, the SIV program, um, because it would have brought brown people into the United States. They stopped this back in 2018, and uh, you know, and threw a monkey wrench into the into the works. And Biden has put it back together. He, he started this program back up in February of this year, and. Uh, you know, last, last week, early last week, and at least through Thursday, I was saying, you know I, you know, I was criticizing Biden for not having gotten ahead of the curve and not having gotten more done quickly, more quickly. Uh, now I am figuring it out. And, uh, you know, sadly, it took a long time for the, for the mainstream media to, to help inform me of this, uh, you know, because there really wasn't that much good information about what had happened and how it came about that you know to to whatever extent there are failures in our getting out of Afghanistan you can lay those right at the feet of Donald Trump and 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 let's also point out that Joe Biden had the courage to do this when president Obama knew for 8 years that this war was unwinnable or this occupation was unwinnable that it was going to end in disaster that somebody had to pull out eventually and he didn't have the political courage to do it and I think you could yes. say that tr- the, yes. the same is true for the last four years of the Bush administration, at which point it was obvious that the occupation was not going well, and, yes. and, and for the entire four years of the Trump administration. So here we have, you know, uh, at least 18 of the last 20 years of complete political cowardice and, or, or marginal political cowardice, and now President Biden stands up and says, I'm going to do what's right, and I don't care if it's going to hurt my popularity ratings, uh, I'm gonna do what's right. He, he deserves yes, a lot of credit. Yes. For yes. That.
3: And Democrats all over the and, and almost no Democrats have come to his defense for making that incredibly difficult and brave decision. Thank yeah. you. Well
2: I think I think Democrats are starting to, Michael, and and, and I'll put myself in that list. So thank you. Thank we can't you for, let this
3: be about the this, this, like getting everybody out. We have to let the discussion be about this incredibly brilliant decision. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. Michael, thank you. There's a, a fascinating little geeky science here that I wanted to share with you. And I, th- I think this is really, really interesting. The title of the article, this came out of uh, Okayama University in Japan, and the title of the article is Scientists Dig Deep to Understand the Effects of Population Pressure on Violence Levels. And the, there's an intuitive part, and a counterintuitive part to it. It's absolutely fascinating comparing the two. What they found is that, yes, in fact, there is an association between high population pressures and violence. Now, you can imagine that would be the case, right? That the, the more people are competing for resources, um, you know, the, the more violence you're going to have and the more, the more other social ills associating with that. And they specifically tie this to resource scarcity uh, leading to competition and conflict over resources. This is called the population pressure hypothesis. But then they they did this historical study. They went back to the middle Yayoi period. This is 350 B.C. to 25 uh, C.E. or A.D., a a period of almost 400 years. And uh, looking at the skeletal remains in these jar coffers, these are very, very well-preserved skeletal remains, to find out what was going on. And what they found was that during those periods of time when there was a highly functioning government in this region, violence went down, even though population pressure was very high. And during those times when the government became weaker, which is exactly what you know the Taliban and the Republicans and the libertarian billionaires all want, right, is a, a weaker federal government Well, actually, I I suppose you could argue that the Republicans and the Taliban want a strong federal government when it comes to oppressing women and gays and folks like that. But generally speaking, um, when it comes to protecting the people, they want a weaker government. And during those times when there was a weaker government, there was more interpersonal violence, there was more murder, there was more crime. And I, I just found this absolutely fascinating. I wanted to share it with you. Yes, government can be a uh, a force for good when it's done right. So, anyhow, pick up your phone calls on the other side of this break. We've got a lot going on here. Is the Taliban, is the Republican Party the, the American version of the Taliban? Or is that hyperbole? Is that going too You're far? you
3: listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. You want to, you know, reel
2: me back in here? take me, Walk me off this ledge? Try it. We'll be back with your call. Quick math the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees' distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash hartman with two ends. netsuite.com slash hartman. That's netsuite.com slash hartman.
3: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: So what do you think? Is the Republican Party have they become? I mean they they weren't always this way, right? The the Eisenhower Republican Party, even arguably the Nixon Republican Party was not a Taliban-like party. But, you know, ever I would say ever since Ronald Reagan brought George W. Bush, the son of his vice president, in as the advisor to connect the Republican Party and the and the and the Reagan administration to the religious right. And both Reagan and Bush, Vice President Bush at that time, um, uh, did a complete 180 on abortion. Reagan had signed the most liberal abortion law in the United States as governor of California. George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, I don't recall if he was on the board of Planned Parenthood or if he just regularly did fundraisers for them, but he was a big booster, as was his wife Barbara. They completely changed in 2001 at the suggestion of their son to bring in the right-wing Christian crazies. Has the Republican Party become the Taliban? Britt in Eureka, California. Hey, Britt, thanks for listening to hey, KGOE. What's up?
3: Hey, Tom, how are you? Thanks Good. for having me on. Yeah, hey, uh, I guess, you know, I'd love to be able to take apart your theory about the American Taliban. But, you know, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to double down on it for you. Um, I think everything you said this morning on your rant was uh, appropriate and made perfect sense. I How could I really refute it? I would, however, point out that there are some differences between what I consider, you know, obviously the, the the real Taliban and our American Taliban, the Republican Party. The big difference in my mind is that since essentially uh, about 1980, the so-called Reagan Revolution, they have been well funded by uh, uh, the American <laughs> oligarchy, basically. You know, I think about the the lobbyists and and all of the people who have donated to the Republican Party and provided them the, you know, basically the means to become, to develop into this party that is, you know, misogynistic, Mm -hmm. that is anti-democratic, that is anti-science, that is all of these things that you outlined this morning. I think the, the big difference is, is that here in America, the American Taliban, also known as the hard right, uh, the hardcore right Republican Party is well funded, and is yeah. supported by educated people in government. Uh, you know, I hate to say it, uh, I don't know how good of an education is, but when you have guys from Harvard and Yale who are conservative Republicans who should know better, uh, supporting the the hard right Trumpist policies that uh, are are you know for you know the forefront of the Republican Party, I, I think that's one of the the, the the core differences between the taliban and afghanistan what we have here in america yeah
2: excellent points uh brit uh, excellent points and I, uh, I you know i can't i can't disagree I, I i don't have a um an argument against that it's it, and in fact uh, you know we funded the taliban the early taliban uh, the mujahideen yeah. and the taliban to fight the soviets and then you know they were funded in part also by some of the middle eastern countries and of course there's some very very wealthy people in pakistan who support the taliban that being where osama bin laden went to live uh, where he was on 9 11 where khalid sheikh mohammed planned 9 11 in part i mean most of the planning actually yeah. was done in germany and in jupiter florida um, none of it was done in afghanistan why we invaded afghanistan well because it was the second poorest country in the world it was a guaranteed victory for George W. Bush, and uh, and he and he was very clear. You know, in 1999, he told his biographer that he was going to have a he was going to be a war president. That's that was the key to being seen as a great leader, and uh, you know he got it. Brett, thank you, thank you very much. Brian in uh, Booth Bay, Mary, Maine. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today?
1: Thank you for taking my call, Tom. I love the show. I've been a long-time listener. I'm 37 years old, and I started listening about 12 years ago. It's My oh, first my. time calling. Thank you. Yes, thank you for all you do. Um, I wanted to talk about religion, uh, religious moderates giving cover to the extremists, Mm -hmm. but I'd also like to offer a solution to your question, to Dean. How do we fix it? How do we fix the big problem? Um, It's, it's in my opinion, it's, and I'm coming from a a privileged position of being an atheist uh, almost, almost my whole life. But more importantly, I'm a skeptic. I look at things sceptically, critically. I weigh the evidence against, I weigh the claims against the evidence, and that's what religious moderate, in my opinion, should start doing. And to, to answer your question to Dean, it's all about education. We need to radically shift towards critical thinking and skepticism in our education program, and that will fundamentally reduce the influence that religion has as a tool to manipulate people into doing horrific acts of violence or even subtle acts of violence. Look at the simple racism and the simple acts that you see every day and hear about every day that leads to mass shootings and drug abuse and violence and pedophilia, child trap, you name it. The list is extensive. That's my, that's my solution to the problem. But it's really my... I, I would like this opportunity to reach out to your listeners and your religious moderates, who, who know that they're good people, that want the church and the synagogue and the, and the temples that they may attend to do the right thing. But you have to look at this critically. We're only going to graduate as a species from these Bronze Age and, and, and ancient ideas and theories if we come together as an intelligent species and save ourselves from the destruction that we're bringing down on us. Yeah.
2: You know, um, religion before science, religion served the function of science, which is helping people make sense out of things that don't seem to make sense. You know, I'm why freeing. why did Ralph get hit by that bolt of the lightning? Well, it must have been because Thor was pissed off, right? Um, and and now we can say, oh, well, it's because he was standing in a field and there was a, an electrical charge associated with his head that was closer to the clouds. Um, so. I would I would submit to you that Europe, I, I, you know Louise and I lived in Europe for a year back in the 80s. We lived in Germany, and the churches, yes, there's some people who go to church on Sundays and even on on you know Wednesday nights and things who are who are you know uh, really committed to their religion. But by and large, the churches in Europe serve uh, ceremonial functions. They are the places where 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 or transitions of, of childhood to adulthood are made, um, where uh, weddings are performed, where deaths are mourned, they are more ceremonial than they are fervent. And I believe that part of that is because Europe, for hundreds of years, saw something that the United States only saw in a little tiny bit of the country. Which was what happens when government gets taken over by religious crazies, um, the, the 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 you know the the, the Catholic Church uh, launching the Crusades, the 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 the, the uh, Spanish Inquisition, the uh, you know the absolute uh, iron fist really of the Catholic Church right up until the 1500s. Um, and then the and then the, of course the Protestant Reformation and all the wars that were fought around the Protestant Reformation ultimately, and, and at a certain point I think the people in Europe said, okay, that's it. <laughs> you know, we're we're not going to take this stuff seriously anymore. And by the way, that kind of coincided with the with the Scientific Revolution. You know, with Copernicus and everybody else here in the United States, that was largely limited to the to a little stretch of land between Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. And, you know, Ben Franklin was born in Massachusetts. He fled Massachusetts when he was 16 or 17 years old because they were, uh, this was, they were past the point of burning witches, but they were still torturing women at that point in time. And, and he was like, okay, that's it. I'm out of here. And that's why he went to Philadelphia, because Philadelphia was a completely secular city. And that value system informed our you know the people who wrote the Constitution and the you could say the founders and framers of this country, and I think we are only just now, in a big way, on a nationwide level, seeing a a return of this kind of religious fervor in a way that is bleeding into governance like we saw in Massachusetts in the in the late sixteen early seventeen hundreds and uh, I, I'm, I'm very worried that it's going to take, you know, a real shock to the system for Americans to wake up to, to, to how toxic this kind of religion is. You know, whether it's another Jim Jones kind of event or whether it's just, you know, the, the, the progressive oppression of women and a large blowback against that. What, the, what do you think,
1: Brian? Um, I, I agree with what you said. I, I want to know if you think... America has the capacity to really grasp the the damage that that extreme religion has. And if the religious moderates who are giving cover implicitly, not not it's not an ex- explicit kind of cover. It's not like, I'm religious, so all religion is is uh, justified. You know, it's, it's the idea that, well, my religion isn't um, murdering women or cutting hands off. It, it, it's not a problem of religion. I wonder if Americans have the capacity to realize that it is the, the indoctrination of our children that, that manipulate our brains. I think so, shape- because we did
2: it once before. I mean, this, you know, okay. the, the, when, when they got together in Philadelphia in 1787 to write the Constitution, in two different places... They put religion, or at least uh, freedom from religion, into the Constitution. There shall be no religious test for public office. That's written into the body of the Constitution itself. And then uh, that people shall be free from religion. The, the, the practice of religion shall be freely exercised. But similarly, the, the, the failure, the lack of practice to religion shall be, shall be f- you know, free of interference by government. Uh, and that, that didn't happen in a vacuum. That was in response to what was going on in Massachusetts, Brian, which was being run as a theocracy. Massachusetts almost didn't get allowed to enter the, to join the 13 colonies because they had to alter their constitution before they could join the 13 colonies because up until that point, their constitution stipulated that people had to pay taxes to churches and and they had to show up every week. And the police, one of the jobs of the police was to go house to house and drive people out of their houses if they weren't in church. So, I think we've been there before. I think we can You're do it again.
3: To Tom Hartman. Visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archives.
2: At least I hope we can do it again.
3: <laughs> because
2: we're awful close. John in Watertown, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Hey, John, what's up?
4: Yes. Uh, hi, Tom. I um, just real quickly here wanted to ask you, I know you were talking before about how um, during, you know, with Ronald Reagan in 1980 the moral majority and everything, how the, uh, the religious right kind of took over the Republican Party. But I also remember Jimmy Carter was a strongly religious man and uh, mm-hmm. he was a Democrat. And I'm just wondering, uh, would somebody like that even be electable today as president?
2: You know, Jimmy Carter was uh, quite personal about his, his, uh, his Christianity. He, he did not wear it on his sleeve. He didn't talk about it very much. He did not use it as an excuse for any kind of policy. He didn't cite his Christianity to end abortion. He didn't, he didn't even cite his Christianity for doing things like Habitat for Humanity. He, he simply said it was the right thing to do. Um, so while he was and still is a dedicated Christian, and a Bible school teacher. Um, he yeah. did not exploit religion for political purposes the way that Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush did, uh, you know, following the advice of George W. Bush, who created this marriage between the Falwell and Robertson and, and uh, Tony Perkins wing of, the, of hardcore right-wing Taliban style Christianity in the United States and the Reagan administration, and, and ultimately the entire Republican Party. So I think yeah. not. I, I don't. I don't think the analogy is apt, John.
4: Um, so. Okay. Yeah, because I, I had a lot of respect for Jimmy Carter. I think he just he you know carried himself very well. He was humble and you know he was true to his you know. I think he you know he was faithful to his wife. He was um, he served uh, he served in the navy and everything. Jimmy Carter and, was a uh, good I mean, man. He is a good man. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm, but, um, I am I am I am such a, a Jimmy Carter fan and the more time goes by the more I appreciate his presidency and uh, you know yeah. and, and and you know what he did for America how he helped this country and and his efforts I mean his his effort to, uh, to do something about the energy crisis was nothing short of heroic. It was undone by Ronald Reagan, but it, was, it, it could have saved this country a hell of a lot of suffering and expense right now if we had actually paid attention to him back in the 19, 1970s. John, thank you for the call. I honor Jimmy Carter. We'll be back, same bat time, same bat place in the meantime. I want to thank Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, Patrick White, Jarrell and Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Orreo, and Carne Verde. Thank you. All the folks who helped make this show work for you, and thank you for helping, you know, helping keep us going. Be good to yourself and those around you. Get out there, get active, tag your it.